0: Heavenly Father, as we open your word now and consider it, please we be with us by your Holy Spirit. Father, I join David in the Psalms and he prays, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I pray as a church you would open our hearts, that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you were to die today, and find yourself standing before God, and He asks you the question, why should I let you into heaven? I wonder what you would say. Well, the church in Galatia, 2,000 years ago, used to be crystal clear on the answer to that question. They would have answered it with absolute confidence. But something recently had gone horribly wrong. So wrong that if you were to ask that question to them at the time this letter was written, the members of the church wouldn't have been able to give you a straight answer. They had become confused. They had been led astray. They could no longer tell you for sure whether God would accept them. Now it's important to state that the answer to that vital question is here in the scriptures, in the Bible, and we will look at the answer today. But if you were to ask a first century Galatian church member why God should allow them into heaven, the answer may have sounded something like this. Well, I I hope God will accept me because I'm a Christian. I've been coming to church regularly. I've been baptised. I've even been circumcised according to the Jewish law. I know and I keep the Ten Commandments and other ritual laws in in the law of Moses. I give my money to charitable causes. I give my money to the church. I pray a lot. I always try and help other people. I volunteer my time for good causes. I have a strong moral compass. And I'd honestly, genuinely try my best to be a good person. Surely, they would say, God will accept me because of these things, Surely. Tragically, the Galatian church no longer had confidence that they would be accepted by God after death. And so because of this, to put it bluntly, the Galatian church was in a crisis. Well, before we look at the right and biblical answer to that question, let's just briefly look and review what has gone wrong, so wrong for the Galatian church. It had started uh, so well. So when the Apostle Paul the writer of this letter had been with them and preached the gospel to them. They had received his message and him with joy. If you've got your Bible, look uh, with me. Chapter 4, verse 14. It reads this. And even uh, though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. And in verse 7 of today's passage in chapter 5, Paul says, you were running so well. What has gone wrong? You've got your Bibles, look, another verse, chapter 1, and go to verse 6. What has gone wrong? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The Galatian church had been thrown into confusion, bewitched and persuaded to believe a false gospel by a bunch of false teachers. They had deserted the gospel message that Paul had first preached to them, that good news of Jesus dying on a cross and rising again. its good news that brings forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for all who believe. They had deserted that gospel message uh, and they accepted and, and believed a, a message that was not good news at all. Quite the opposite, that the message that they were swallowing now was a works-based religion. And instead of bringing freedom, it was actually enslaving them. So the Galatian church is in a crisis. And it's a crisis that's leading to the total shipwreck of their faith. Paul therefore pens this very robust letter, intending to strike them with such force that he knocks some gospel sense back into them. So our passage this morning helps us to answer that question I posed right at the start. Why should God allow any of us into heaven? And I want to make two brief points here. Um, So the first one is this. The only thing that counts is faith in Christ Jesus. The only thing that counts is faith in Christ Jesus. This passage in chapter 5, it starts with a stark contrast Look at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. you see that contrast? On the one hand, you've got freedom in Christ, and outside of Christ, there is a slavery on the other hand. The argument builds in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So choose circumcision and you lose Christ. He is of no value to you, no freedom, just slavery. And Paul gets stronger as he goes on. Look at verses 3 to 4. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Paul is laboring the point here. And to be perfectly honest, you may have seen it, over the last four chapters of the letter, he's been really laboring the point. Now, circumcision, for those who aren't familiar, is the removal of the male foreskin, usually the first couple of weeks after birth. And God required it, of all Israelite males, and it was a sign of his covenant promise with the people. Now there was nothing wrong per se with being circumcised or having been circumcised, but it was this new act of circumcision for new believers uh, that it represented in the Galatian context. And it represented a works-based religion, a do-it-yourself DIY religion. For the Galatians, it represents tying themselves to the law of Moses. It represents human effort, human work, obeying ritual laws to win or earn the approval of God. That is not just an issue with obeying the law of Moses. The variety, the pantheon of gods of the day in Galatia would have also required a similar obedience to laws and rituals to earn a God's acceptance. And that isn't just find to the 1st century, we see exactly the same in the 21st century, don't we? So in Hinduism, you improve your karma by good works for a better reincarnation. In Buddhism, you can eventually achieve enlightenment through the work of meditation. With Islam, you need to keep the five pillars of Islam. In Roman Catholicism, you, you need to stay in a state of grace through keeping the mass and confession regularly. All of them require work. They're required to exert some human effort to earn God's approval, and that wouldn't be denied. So for the Galatians, this is what circumcision represented, which is why Paul says in verse 3, every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, By all means, be circumcised, but make sure you're logically consistent with that line of arguments. Make sure you keep the whole law. Make sure you live a perfect life. Keep every commandment in there perfectly all of the time. That's simply impossible. And if you try, verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And it's that word, grace, that is at the very heart of the gospel. The good news that Jesus has saved us while we are still sinners, regardless of any good works, regardless of how good we are. He lived a life that was perfect. He perfectly obeyed that law of Moses they're trying to obey. He never did anything wrong, and he only ever did good all of the time. And then he died on a cross, murdered by man. Jesus was the most innocent man that ever walked the face of this earth. And he took our punishment, the hell that we deserve for the sin that we have committed. And then he rose again three days later. And now, regardless of how good we are, he reaches down into our pit to save us and lift us out. Not because we deserve in any way, but because of his kindness and mercy to the undeserving. Grace, when it's understood, is the most liberating and freeing of truths. My question, while I've been preparing this, is thinking through, well, surely the message of grace, if that's the case, surely it should be more popular. Jesus saving us, despite anything that we can do, despite how bad we are, or unattractive we are, surely not having to work hard to earn god's approval should be more popular. Well clearly not. As we've seen the do it yourself religion is vastly more popular. With DIY religion you do not need to accept your own helplessness and sinfulness. You do not need to accept anyone's rescue. You can get yourself sorted. You can take off your good deeds as we've looked at over the course of this this series on your clipboard and you can feel pretty good about yourself. You can also look at those who are worse than you, and again, you can feel pretty good about yourself. But it never ends. There is never any security. There is no peace, no assurance, and no loving God that wants to save you. Look down for a moment at verse six of our passage. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. If you take nothing else away from this this morning, uh, please simply remember this. The only thing that counts is faith in Christ Jesus. Your eternal salvation Whether God accepts you now or when you die does not depend on anything other than whether you have faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus, whether you trust in him alone to save you. You being here at church this morning counts for nothing towards your salvation. The fact you made the effort to get here, perhaps you made the effort every day of your life, every Sunday of your life to get here, it has no value, it counts for nothing towards your salvation. Giving your money to church counts for nothing. Offering hospitality, helping lead a Sunday group, attending a home group, helping with sunflowers, reading the Bible, saying your prayers, serving tea and coffee after the service, being on the welcoming team, attending prayer meetings, making the effort to talk to new faces after a service, helping cleaning this building, cleaning the toilets, leading a service, preaching a sermon. None of it counts anything. None of it has any value. None of it counts for anything towards earning your salvation or the approval of God. Please do not think that by doing any of these things you are earning God's approval by simply doing them. Please never think that because I've done X or I'm doing Y that God will be pleased with me and accept me. Do not hear me wrong though. Please do not hear me wrong on this. These things are all good things, and it is good that you are here this morning. But there is no good work out there that will earn your salvation. Quite the opposite. If you rely on them, you will find yourself enslaved to them. You will never be able to do enough, and you will live with a continual sense of guilt. Now, your salvation has been won at a far higher price than you could ever pay off, even with a thousand lifetimes. Does that mean that we should just not bother? What's the what, what point of doing good things? Or well, no? Now we are free to express our faith through love. Look at verse six; it says it there: expressing, expressing itself through love. Now, I kind of help with possible illustration of this. So, if I imagine a hypothetical day uh, where I might be a, the perfect husband. I would have to be on this. But, so it might start with me bringing my wife Ali a cup of tea in the morning, shortly followed by breakfast Maybe then I'd take the kids out of the house for a few hours give her peace and quiet. Maybe I would then come back and I'd bought a present for her. Um, maybe then I'd make a nice evening meal. I'd cook it, I'd serve it, I'd do the washing up afterwards. Unless I did all of that, would that effort of being a good husband have made me more married? Of course not. I would still have been married had I not done any of that stuff. The marriage covenant occurred for us on the 19th of August, 2011. I'm not more married today as I was, uh, what, 12 years ago on that date. I'm therefore free from needing to earn the marriage. That promise, that covenant, was already made before God and witnesses. But I am now free to express love in the marriage by working on it, by serving my wife, by serving each other. Because, Because I want to, because there's happiness in doing that. There's blessing in it. If you're trusting in Christ alone this morning, then you've been set free from any obligation to earn his approval. If you put your trust in him, then you are a new creation. You have his spirit in you. You have a new heart of flesh and the Holy Spirit is changing your desires slowly. You start to hate the sin that you once loved. And you're growing in your love for what is holy, right, pure and good. And you are free to do good because you love the Lord. You love his word. You love the Lord's people. And you've got a growing love for the lost souls around you. You don't do it because you're slavishly earning your salvation. You do it because you want to honour your master. You want to walk in his ways and experience joy and peace of living with him and for him. But if you're sat there this morning, you sat here this morning, and you know that if I ask that question I posed at the start, why should God accept you? And if you would honestly answer, something other than simply trusting in faith, trusting faith in Jesus. If you know that truthfully you are trusting in something else that requires your own work and efforts, then please this day accept the freedom on offer in Christ. Whatever you're trusting in outside of Christ, it counts for nothing before God. Please look no further than Jesus Christ. Call on him today. And pray that you might know him. Confess your sins to him. And pray you might know that forgiveness he offers you. And that freedom that can only be found in his name. The only thing that counts is faith in Christ Jesus. My second and and briefer point is this: um, remind each other, the only thing that counts is faith. In Christ Jesus. Remind each other the only thing that counts is faith in Christ Jesus. And you might be thinking, like James, we know this. This is simple stuff. We know the gospel. We know what grace means. This is basic truth as we mature believers. If so, be careful. At one point, the Galatians would have thought exactly the same. And the truth is, we need to tread very carefully here. Go to the Bible, Dave, look at chapter 3, and look at verse 1. It starts, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And look again at the start of the book, chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. They are strong words of rebuke from Paul. Back in chapter 5, we need to heed the warning of the passage. Look at verse 9. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now, I'm no expert in baking uh, the last time I baked, I think I was 11 years old in year 7, food technology class, we made a pizza. Um, and I, I do like pizza, and I do like pizza dough, and I saw expert advice, and I've come to understand that you do need to add a small amount of yeast to your dough. You need to knead it in for a long time, uh, and it will make a fluffy pizza dough. It's a remarkable substance, and it only takes a little bit. And equally, it only takes a little bit subtle false teaching or false practice to have a disastrous consequence for a church, it only takes a subtle uh, compromise on truth. It only takes something else taking precedence or center sage in our worship or a small um, sort of extra expectation we might put on ourselves or in our teaching. And why might we be persuaded to do that? Well, there's one reason in particular given in this passage and that is to avoid persecution. It was a, it was a motivation in Galatia. Look at um, verse 11 of our passage, chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. For the Galatians, circumcision would have gained social acceptance to a degree in the culture they were living So it would have helped to avoid those socially awkward conversations about their faith at work, perhaps. It would ultimately have avoided being persecuted for their faith in Christ full stop. That's a first century Galatia. But for 21st century Christians here in the UK, there will be other cultural pressures, won't there? Perhaps we might hear real Christians believe in Jesus, yes. But they also support this cause. And you can insert your own uh, culturally acceptable cause into that space. Or perhaps you might hear the true Christians are the one who manifest this particular gift or get behind this particular ministry. We can go on adding things, couldn't we? A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And the sad analysis of this teaching, this false teaching, is seen in verse seven and eight. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Now imagine you're watching a race at the Olympics. They're running, they're hurtling towards the finishing line. And then suddenly someone out of the crowd jumps onto the track and does a sliding tackle and wipes out one of the runners, knocks him completely down. That runner hasn't just been slowed down in their race. They've been totally wiped out of the race. It's like that here in, in, in verse 7. Adding anything other than faith in Christ alone to the gospel is simply not good news anymore. It's not God's truth. It has wiped it out and replaced it with man-made DIY religion. It strips across cross of its power and it pours scorn on God's grace. It has no value to anyone and anyone who teaches it the end of verse 10, will have to pay the penalty. He or she will face God's eternal wrath for leading souls away from the truth. And Paul leaves little to the imagination, doesn't he, in verse 12. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Probably one of the rudest verses in the Bible. He has absolutely no time for the peddlers of a false do-it-yourself gospel. And MRC, we need to be particularly careful in this season that we find ourselves in, I think. So our recent circumstances in our search for a senior pastor could easily have destabilizing and disunifying effects on our small fellowship. It would be easy for a little yeast, a subtle change in emphasis, a small compromise in truth, to work its way through the whole church. Paul warns of this, and we would be wise to listen very carefully and not think that we're above it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 it says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he falls. So let's keep each other focused on the gospel. And that starts with ourselves, with time in the word on our own and in prayer. It will mean reminding ourselves throughout the day that we're not valued or saved because of our performance, but because of the work of God's Son, the Lord Jesus. And let us together as a church not allow anything to take our eyes from faith in Christ alone. Let's not give up on evangelism either. It's hard to forget the gospel when you're telling other people about it. Let's not give up on it. And if we think we see a little yeast working its way through the dough, then in love, shine light on it. We do that through speaking the truth of scripture. It is all of our responsibility to guard the good deposit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just finish with a quote from Don Carson a relatively well-known theologian and teacher I come across. If I have learned anything in 35 or 40 years of teaching, it is that students don't learn everything I teach them. What they learn is what I'm excited about, the kinds of things I emphasize again and again and again and again. That had better be the gospel. If the gospel, even when you are orthodox, because something becomes something which you primarily assume, but what you are excited about is what you are doing in some sort of social reconstruction, you will be teaching the people that you influence that the gospel really isn't all that important. You won't be saying that. You won't even mean that. But that is what you'll be teaching. And then you are only half a generation away from losing the gospel. Make sure that in your own practice and excitement, what you talk about, what you think about, what you pray over, what you exude confidence over, joy over, what you're enthusiastic about is Jesus, the gospel, the cross. And out of that framework, by all means, let a transformed life flow. So MRC, let's first remember, the only thing that counts is faith in Christ Jesus. And let's not stop reminding each other, the only thing that counts is faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.